If I told you today what you were going to do tomorrow, and I was right, you'd be impressed, right? I mean, if I just went down the line, I said, tomorrow you're going to get up, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, this is going to happen to you, that's going to happen to you. I think that would get your attention. You'd be impressed by that. If I told you what was going to happen to you 50 years from now, uh, you'd be amazed. I mean, if I could get just, just probably one thing exactly right, that'd blow your mind. But if I told you today what would happen to a person 725 years from now, and I got that right, what would you think? Today we're going to look at what the prophet Isaiah wrote about Jesus. And we're going to see that 725 years, give or take, before it happened, Isaiah told us what would happen. Read with me Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Isaiah, 725-ish years before it happened, gives us a near play-by-play of not just the crucifixion, he also covers some other parts of Jesus' life. And actually, this section begins, we're not beginning there, but this section actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13, where he begins to talk about the servant, this suffering servant. This chapter 
blew the minds of the people that heard it. As, as we study it, as we look back in history, as we look at how Jewish commentators handled it soon after it came out and all the way up to the time of Jesus, they just really didn't know what to do with it. The Messiah was not supposed to be a suffering servant. The Messiah was not supposed to die. The Messiah was not to be, supposed to be unwanted and uh, um, um, common and all of these other things. This was not what their Messiah was supposed to be. And it confused them until they began to look at Jesus. Even today, though, many people reject this chapter and say, no, this cannot be about the Messiah because that would never happen to our Messiah, but it did. Accidental fulfillment, the, the fact that Jesus just happened to fulfill all of these prophecies, well, that would be impossible. Intentional fulfillment, Jesus decided one day, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to fulfill Isaiah 53, just for giggles. That would be insane. It did not just happen. Isaiah gives us the roadmap, gives us the play-by-play, -play, and we're going to work through this passage this morning. He begins, Isaiah does, by saying, Who has believed what we have heard? Actually, he better translation to say, Who would believe what we have observed. It's, it's a question to the listeners. It's a question to those uh, whom the people are talking to, who the, the, the prophet is prophesying to. Who would believe this? Listen, get, give ear to what I'm going to tell you right now. Who would believe that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. The question stands for you today. We're going to get to the invitation before we even get started uh, good today. I ask you this morning, would you believe today? Who would believe an amazing story? An amazing story about my Jesus. Who would believe, Isaiah says, and, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord. And he mentions that back in chapter 52, verse 10. He says something about the arm of the Lord. He says, the Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. See, the servant, suffering servant, the servant that Isaiah is about to describe that is going to go through all of these things, that is going to experience death, that is not just some happenstance. It's not just some poor guy. Boy, didn't he have a rough life. That servant is the arm of the Lord. That is the, uh, the Lord's power. That's my Jesus coming in power. From the right hand of the Father. To whom it's revealed, he says. The arm of the Lord. To whom has the Lord been revealed? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This morning, the arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the servant coming in the power, the Messiah who came from the right hand of the Father and comes in power. Would you listen to my Jesus this morning? Would you Hear the message my Jesus has for you. 
Isaiah tells us where he's going to come from. He says, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, it says. He's alluding, Isaiah, uh, to chapter 9, verse 7, where he talks about the Messiah being of the Davidic line. He's alluding to, uh, not even alluding, he is almost quoting himself from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He says, uh, a a branch from the stump of Jesse, a root from them, that the Messiah would come from this line, that you could trace from their best king ever, David, all the way down to the Messiah. But not just the Messiah, that's who he's talking about in chapter 9 and chapter 11, but now he tells us the Messiah will be this suffering servant. The suffering servant will be a root. From dry ground. Dry ground. Isn't that the life we lead? Isn't that our hopelessness? Isn't that what Jesus came into? A world looking for hope. A world looking for promise. A a world looking for salvation. Though they might not have been cognizant of their need enough to put that name on it. They came looking for that. The ground was dry, and yet this shoot, this branch, this life came up from this dry ground where life should not have come from. That's my Jesus, David's descendant. Matthew and Luke clearly tell us that Jesus' line came from the line of of David. We are told over and over, the people recognized him. They knew him as son of David, son of David, have mercy on me, uh, the uh, blind man called. Son of David, son of David. They knew this man, this child of David, was the son of God. That's my Jesus, David's descendant. Isaiah continues to tell us now, not just where he came from, but what he was like. No impressive form, he says, or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should uh, desire him. See, the suffering servant was just a, a regular guy from humble beginnings. He wouldn't have... A home. He wouldn't come as a king. He wouldn't come riding white stallions or pulled in gold chariots. He had no pedigree other than his line of David. To them, he had no value. They looked and they didn't see anything worth having in the suffering servant. That's my Jesus. From Nazareth, nowhere. Born in Bethlehem, raised in a backwater town. He didn't come as Herod expected, a king with with an entourage. The wise men looking in, in Jerusalem at first looked for this king, but nope, that's not where it was. The prophecy said Bethlehem. The king at the time didn't even get it. That's my Jesus from nowhere. No impressive form. In describing Jesus, in describing rather the suffering servant, Isaiah tells us how people are going to respond to him. He had no form. There was nothing about him that would attract us to him. But instead, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. 
He was despised, and we didn't value him. Nobody praised him. Nobody thought there was anything special about this suffering servant. Because why would we? We don't value suffering. We value strength. We value power. We value overcoming. And here we have a regular guy from nowhere Nazareth or nowhere, wherever here. And nobody praised him. His family rejected him. He's crazy. He's got this idea he's going to suffer for God. His friends abandoned him. They rejected. Everyone rejected him. In his life, he knew pain. He knew sorrow. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew every hurt that we know. He could identify with everything we go through, this suffering servant. He was despised and we didn't value him, Isaiah says. He wasn't seen for what he was. He was only seen for what people thought about him. He was not valued for what he was worth. They looked and they saw a nobody from nowhere. What could he possibly do for me? What could he possibly bring to me? That's my Jesus. John says the light came into the world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. We did not understand who he was. We didn't get it. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about how he told them over and over, the disciples told the disciples over and over what would happen, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again, and then when he rose again, they were all surprised, like they didn't know what was going to happen. They did not comprehend the Messiah. That's my Jesus. Verse 4 begins with yet. Oh, we like the yets. All that happened, but. All that happened, yet don't hang out there. We got to keep moving. Yet, verse 4, his treatment didn't matter. The fact that they did those things to him, it did not matter. His rejection didn't matter. The fact that they did not accept him did not matter to him. His suffering did not matter. His suffering was only a part of his recognition and his relationship with those he had come to serve. All that didn't matter. The suffering servant moved forward with determination. He knew his job, he knew his purpose, and he was going to move toward that purpose. That's my, that's my Jesus. Praying in the garden the night before he would be crucified. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I do not want to do this. But, yet, not my will but yours be done. That's my Jesus. He himself, verse 4 continues, carried our pains, bore our sicknesses. He took the sickness, not our illnesses, our sniffles, our strep throats, but the sickness that sin brought. The sickness that they were discussing earlier in chapter 52. 
the, the, the problems that they were having brought about by their own sinful nature. He took that sickness. He took the pain that sin brought. And doesn't sin bring pain? He took it all. Verse 5 continues with this, uh, what Jesus did. He uh, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. He took the wound of rebellion. He was pierced for our, because of our rebellion. Rebellion is not a good thing. Rebellion against the God of the universe is treason. And we are treasonous to God. But he took this suffering servant. He took the, the wound of that rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. He took the weight of our sin. And he took punishment in order to bring us peace. And for all that had gone on, for every sin that the people that Isaiah is talking about here, for every sin they committed, the suffering servant was blamed for it. That's my Jesus. On trial, in a mockery of a court with the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling Jewish leaders of the day thrown to Herod. You got to figure something out. Herod says, I got nothing. You do it. Talk about it some more. Oh, he, 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 he is blasphemed. He must die. Send him to Pilate. Pilate says, this is your problem, not mine. And he is tried in air quotes. He's beaten. He's abused. He's whipped crown of thorns is placed on his head. He would not be recognizable at this point. Barely as a man, certainly not as the man Jesus. And then he was nailed to a cross. That's my Jesus. Isaiah goes from that to describing us again. We all... He says, when astray like sheep, we all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. See, the fault Isaiah knew was in the people. The people at this point in verse 6, they are admitting their fault, admitting their responsibility. He tells them, or, or they tell him, Sometimes we wandered. Sometimes they, they strayed. Here's the path, but they got off the path because they weren't paying attention. Sometimes they ran. There was no wandering. It was rebellion. But they were all responsible, Isaiah says, and they knew it. But the punishment from God did not fall on the wanderers and the runners. It, felt, it fell on the servant. The servant took the punishment. The Lord has punished him for iniquity of them. 
Is that fair? No. But that's my Jesus. Dying for me. On the cross, he took my sins. On the cross, he bore my iniquities. On the cross, he was punished for my wandering and my running. And folks, on the cross, he was punished for you as well. That's my Jesus dying. How did he go about this? What was it like for him? Isaiah tells us what the suffering servant will experience, what the suffering servant will realize. He says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. You see, the suffering servant would be mercilessly and unfairly attacked. He would experience things he should have never experienced. And yet he would experience them, and he would not fight back. What kind of Messiah king is that? What kind of Messiah would take that sort of punishment, never speak up, never defend himself, and never fight back? All the other sheep went astray in verse 6. They wandered and they ran. But this lamb of verse 7 was faithful. He made no plea for escape. He made no argument to lessen the pain. Took it. That's my Jesus. The willing sacrifice for my sin. He chose it. He did it for me and for you. He was taken away, verse 8 says, because of oppression and judgment. And then the, the crowd asks the question, this question through Isaiah, and they say, Who considered his fate? Of all those who were watching, who were standing around, who watched what the suffering servant and actually thought about what was going on, did they not regard whom they pierced? Did they not look at him and say, wait a minute, who is this man, this humble servant from nowhere going through these things. What is this about? Did they not recognize what was happening? Wait a minute. This is injustice. This should not be happening. He's being punished for us. Did they not realize the purpose of the suffering servant's sacrifice? That he was there for them for a greater purpose than they could realize. Didn't they not think about it? If they did, they were blind to it. They were blind to the truth of the suffering servant's purpose. Y'all, that's my Jesus. God in the flesh. 
people willfully blind to whom they were crucifying. He told them over and over and over, and they did not care. And they crucified him anyway. Abandoned, because everybody ran away, except his mama. Mamas don't run away. Everybody else left him. That's my Jesus. Verse 8 continues. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Cut off from the living. That's a nice way of saying dead. He was dead. The suffering servant suffered the final blow and he died. But his death was brought by sin. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was not dead because of his own doing. He was not dead because he deserved it, but he was dead because of the people. Verse 9 continues to tell us what happens after he dies. His grave was with the rich and the wicked. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. But he was not deserving of death. He had not done no violence, verse 9, and had not spoken deceitfully. They had. The people had. They knew what they had done. But here the suffering servant is now dead because, what they, because of what they had done. That's my Jesus. Dead in a tomb. Not his tomb. Joseph's tomb of Arimathea. A rich man. He died between two thieves, the wicked. He was put in just everybody's old graveyard when he deserved something so much more. First, he deserved not to die, but he did. And he was placed where he didn't belong. That's my Jesus dead in the tomb. But this was an accident, right? This was not what should have happened, right? This was, this was just a, a, a mistake, a, a blip in, in, in the timeline. No, verse 10 says, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. This was God's plan all along. God knew this was going to happen. No, God didn't just know this was going to happen. God made this happen. This was the plan for the suffering servant. This was God's purposeful desire. Not just plan. Not, okay, let's map something out here. Well, I think him dying's a good idea. No, this was a purposeful desire. It must happen this way. This was no tragic accident. This was no, oh man, that's tough. No, this was God at work. That's my Jesus, the God's perfect sacrifice. I couldn't have died for you. You can't die for me. You can't die for anybody else. We can't die for anyone and take their sin. Yet Jesus could. Jesus lived a perfect life. 
He did not deserve to die. He did not deserve pain and suffering. He did not deserve the cross. He did not deserve the tomb. He didn't even deserve to come down here at all and live amongst the roaches. But he did because he was God's perfect sacrifice. He was God's purposeful desire. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. That is my Jesus. Verse 11. Death's the end, right? Death's the end for the suffering servant. Of course, the people are going to expect that. As Isaiah prophesies, they're thinking, all right, it's over. How tragic that he would die for us when, when he had done nothing wrong. How tragic that he would take our sins and our iniquity when they were not his. But nope. Isaiah doesn't stop. I mean, if he's going to blow your mind, he's going to blow it all the way. Verse 11. After his anguish, after his being cut off from the land of the living, after he is placed in the grave, after he is put in the tomb, after he is dead, buried, and not quite forgotten yet, he will live again. He will come back. The suffering servant will not stay dead. Isaiah, this doesn't happen. It doesn't work this way. When you are punished, whether it's for your own crimes or someone else's, when you are dead, you're dead. And Isaiah says, uh-uh, you're not. He will live again. He will see light. He will prolong his days. By his hand, the Lord's uh, pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. It's my Jesus. Killing the grave. There's just holes in the ground now. There's nothing. That, that dirt doesn't scare us. Coffins don't scare us. In Christ, funerals are celebrations. I've gotten to do a number of those where I was happy to do the funeral, and just a little bit jealous because it was a celebration because they had gone home. They were better off than me. The grave is dead. The grave is purposeless. The grave does not scare us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, oh, oh hell, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? They ain't got one because death has been defeated. That's by Jesus killing the grave. And what does he do? What does he do in the grave? Verses 11 and 12. He continues, my righteous servant will justify many. That's a lot of work for a dead man, right? Well, he's not dead. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. He will justify. He will carry iniquities. This death, not only was it not an accident, not only was it a part of God's purposeful plan, but it had a purpose beyond the death. It had a purpose beyond coming back. The, uh, he, he, his life after death will have a purpose. 
He chose to die because he knew in order to grow, in order to produce fruit of salvation, he had to die and be planted as any other seed does in order to produce fruit. That's my Jesus saving lost people today. He died 2,000 years ago. He rose three days later. And he has, for that time, lived to give intercession at the, hand, at the foot of the throne next to uh, his father. He is now saving people right now, today, this morning, somewhere. Somebody's being saved. I pray that it's right here. Somebody, somewhere, is experiencing my Jesus carrying their iniquities, justifying them. He is receiving them. They think they're so mighty and they're going to save themselves. They, they are among the many who have heard the message, but today they respond. And Jesus saves the lost. That is my Jesus. Now, if you're keeping up. You know we left out part of verse 10. If you jump back up there, there's one little phrase, not even a full sentence, that we kind of ignored. It says, when you make him a guilt offering, the people, talking to the people who needed to hear, tells the people who needed to hear that the people need to respond. When you make him a guilt offering, then he will see his seed. Then he will see the produce of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the work and plan for after his death, burial, and resurrection. When the people make him a guilt offering. When the people take what the suffering servant has done and say, This that he did, I present in my place and experience forgiveness for what I have done. The people needed to accept that substitutionary sacrifice of the servant. We see that more clearly toward the end of this long passage. It begins in 52:13, it goes through 54 and then 55, chapter 55, we have an invitation in verses 6 through 7. Actually, the the whole chapter 55 is an invitation, but 6 and 7 just nail it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him. And to our, for he will freely forgive. Make him a guilt offering. That's my Jesus saving you if you call on him. He's ready. He's waiting 
The work has been done. There's no, there's nothing preliminary. You don't have to get your life right. Your sins, your iniquities, they've all been taken. He was crushed by them already. He has already borne them on that cross. He has already taken them. You don't need to do another thing other than make him a guilt offering. Bring what you know of Jesus to God and say, I cannot save myself. I do not have the power over sin. I do not have anything I can do. I cannot earn it. I can never get to where I'm good enough that you will save me. I cannot by my own power rectify the sin situation that I am in. But Jesus, my Jesus can. He can save you. If you will just call on him. Servant who takes away sin wants to take away your sin this morning. What does that look like? Well, we see some description here of Isaiah, but let me put it in a little different language for you this morning. Let me maybe do the, the, the short version right quick. God is holy and just. Somebody's going to suffer for sin. It's not going to be God. God is holy and just. He cannot be around sin, and because of his justice, he will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will judge sin. Where does that leave us? That leaves us exactly where we saw the people that Isaiah was talking about. We are guilty rebels. We are willfully sinful. We are fallen, and our destiny, our guaranteed end is everlasting torment and judgment because of our sinfulness. That is where we are going. That is what we are guaranteed because that is who we are by nature. And we, in and of ourselves, will not and cannot change that. Yet. But. It's a great word. Jesus the suffering servant, the Messiah that wasn't supposed to die but did, is the perfect Son of God. Did not deserve the death, did not deserve the punishment, and he took our place, just like Isaiah said. He took our sin, just like Isaiah said. He was pierced, just like Isaiah said. His hands were nailed to that cross. His feet were nailed to that cross. On that cross, he took our sin. He took our punishment. He died for everyone, not just a few, but everyone. And three days later, though he was cut off from the living, he saw light. He rose. He's not dead. And he rose with a purpose, the purpose to save you and to save me. But we must present him, take him, make him a guilt offering for us. We must repent of our sin. That's what it said in 55, chapter 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord, let one abandon his ways, let him return to the Lord. Repent. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the only way you experience salvation. Believe in him and then live for him. 
What's that you're hearing? What's that you're feeling? Unbeliever, you have a stirring. You've never trusted Christ, but something's working on you on the inside. What is that? That's my Jesus wanting to save you. Asking you to come. I want to make sure it's clear this morning. My left hand, this is me. This is you. And on my phone is everything we've ever done. All of our sins. All of our good things. Everything we've done right here contained in this phone. The problem is, I don't know if my good outweighs my bad. I might be hoping that the good outweighs the bad so I get to heaven, but, but I don't know. And, and it doesn't work that way because we don't know. And if you commit one sin, you've committed, committed them all. And even if you stop right now, what about the ones you've already committed? See, you're a sinner. You're sinful. And you, you carry that sin. And God up in heaven, who is holy and just, cannot be a part of that sin. He wants a relationship with you today. But there's an issue, there's a problem, there's a barrier between you and God, and that is your sin. So God had to figure out a way. He didn't have to figure it. It wasn't like he was up there thinking, now what could I do? No, he knew from the beginning of time, Genesis 3.15 on, at least the recorded time, Genesis 3.15 on, he knew what the plan was. He would send his son, Jesus. Jesus would come to earth. He would die on the cross we can't earn our salvation. Our works aren't good enough. He sent his son to die on the cross. And what was the verse we read? Isaiah 53. I believe it was 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died on that cross for you and for me. He rose three days later. About 50 days later, he went to heaven. The sin problem was taken care of. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed by our iniquities, and he is gone and sits at the right hand of the Father. Now, what's the problem? Sin's not the problem. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Now we must respond. We must make him a sin offering. We must turn to him. We must repent. We must trust Jesus Christ. And then we can be united with the Father. But it doesn't happen automatically. If you jump out of an airplane with a parachute on your back, you can kick your legs, you can flap your arms, you can do all you want to to try to stop that ground from coming at you at an extremely rapid pace and stopping you extremely suddenly, but it will not do any good. You have one salvation, that parachute, but until you reach and pull that cord, that parachute will not open and will not Until you reach for Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior, he will not save you. This morning, you need to respond. You need to pull the ripcord and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for my Jesus. Thank you for the salvation he offers. Thank you for him taking our iniquities, being crushed by our sin, all the the punishment, the pain that he suffered, all for sinners like me. Thank you that you sent him, that you provided the way when there was no other way. 
God, I pray this morning that someone here who's never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior will pull the ripcord today, will make that decision for you. And God, I pray that we would all see the glory and the beauty and the wondrous result of the cross. Lord, may we never, as believers, be bored by the cross. God, the message is not just for unbelievers today, though this is an incredible message of your salvation. This is a message for all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, to consistently look to Jesus to worship him, to rejoice in the work that he did and thank God this morning, 2,000 years ago, he rose from the grave to do the work of salvation, of forgiveness, to draw us to him, to, to see a multitude of the mighty and the many come to him. God, this morning, may we see many mighty people broken for salvation. See many mighty people broken because of their salvation. And Lord, may we worship you in spirit and in truth as you move in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how should you respond this morning? The servant that takes away sin wants you to respond. Maybe you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you need to be baptized. You trusted him. You just want to talk. You want me to pray with you. You want to come to these prayer rails and bow before the cross. Give something to the Lord. Believer, unbeliever, unbeliever, come to me. Let's, let's get the salvation straight. I'll be standing over here on my left. Tom will be standing over here on my right in the corner. You come as you feel led. You do business with God this morning. As we stand, let's sing and let's let him work on our hearts today.